We turn to Joshua chapter 6 this evening, and this evening we're thinking about this other dimension of Christ's church and mighty victories. And this evening uh, we have reflected this past week, I'm sure, on the change in legislation coming to the United States regarding abortion. And we have to consider this as one of these mighty victories for the Lord Jesus Christ. The pulling down of the stronghold of abortion which has been in place since 1973 in that Road versus Wade case which determined abortions could happen up to 23 weeks. The U.S. Supreme Court has overruled that case in 1973, allowing states within the United States of America to determine their own laws on abortion and not fearing the conclusion of that case in 1973. And so it's predicted that up to half of the states in the United States of America is going to reverse uh, that decision on abortion and limit or or in fact cancel the opportunity for abortion within their states in the near future. What a turnaround this has been. Something you or I could never have imagined in our lifetime. Something that we thought we would have to always live with this ruling on abortion. But but here, before our eyes, in our time, there is this evidence that within the church of Christ, mighty victories are effected by the head of the church, by the king of the church, by the Lord of all. And we come to this sixth chapter to, to coincide with this ruling by the Supreme Court in America to think of these mighty victories which Jesus effects within his church and shows before the eyes of his people. Underpinning this sixth chapter is that promise of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will advance his people. His kingdom will go on. And opposition, evil schemes, wicked men and women will not be able to withstand the advance of the church of Jesus Christ, driven on by the head and the king and the Lord of his people. And this chapter illustrates for us and allows us to imbibe into our life and heart and time this further dimension of Christ's church that we're building up in our studies of Joshua. We've seen in chapter 1, as you remember, that looking through the the window into Christ's church, it is marked by faithful service, people giving of their best to serve their Lord with the talents that he has given to them. In the second chapter, we studied that case study of, of Rahab surprising conversions, the grace of Christ reaching outside the nation. And we have seen throughout Scripture and in our own time, Christ performing such amazing, astounding conversions in the hearts of people. We have studied together in chapter 3 the predominance of the ark, that symbol of the presence of Christ among his people as he led them down that unusual route to the river Jordan. 
And as the ark stood in the heart of that powerful river, it dried up. The people of God passed over the presence, the mighty presence of Christ among his people. We thought last Sabbath evening of the historical connections using Scrabble as our modern day example to to illustrate the historical connections to mighty deeds of God in the past. This morning we thought about the sacraments within Christ's church typified for us in circumcision and in the Passover in chapter 5, seeing how the Lord commanded them to, to keep those Old Testament sacraments before they began the warfare against Jericho. And now we come to the beginning of this section in Joshua, which describes for us the conquest of the church over its enemies. And we come to this sixth chapter to consider the, the mighty victories of, of the Lord. We want to think, first of all, of the mighty victories and God's power. Here is a display of the power of the Lord, our God and Savior. And this is emphasized in, in a range of ways, isn't it, uh, within this chapter the, uh, and, and beyond the chapter. The, the first emphasis that this is God's work here. It's in that angel that we read off at the end of chapter 5. This unusual figure who appears, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. I think he describes himself in verse 15 as the commander of the Lord's army. It's a wonderful passage, a tremendous conversation between Joshua. He's down at the walls of Jericho. He's looking for weaknesses in this city. He's within its vicinity, the text says. And this figure appears to him. And and Joshua asks him the question, are you on our side or are you on our enemy's side? And and see the answer that that the, the angel gives in verse 14. No. Are you for us or for our enemies? And that would be the only two parties that that we could imagine Joshua could envisage at that time. But but this this person says to Joshua, No. I'm greater than that, Joshua. I'm above any human categorization. I belong to a different rank, a different sphere. And so this emphasis is on God being the source of power and the author of victory for his people. The second emphasis of this is on the ark, predominant in this account, mentioned ten times in this chapter. Once again, the ark, the symbol of it, the presence of Christ among his church is brought into the fore. You see how the two are conflated in verse number eight. Here are the priests and they're before the Lord. They're before the ark, but that in Joyce's understanding is before the Lord. The Lord and the ark, the ark, the symbol of the Lord, that they're conflated into one. To be before the ark is to be before the Lord. And you see in the commands Joshua gives in verses 6 and 7 that that Joshua repeats the commands of the angel and he starts in verse 6 with the ark. Take up the ark of the covenant. And then he goes on to talk about the priests and the soldiers. But the dominant element in his instruction is the ark. 
here's an emphasis that it's the Lord who is the victor in this battle. The approach to the city is ceremonial and not military, isn't it? And marching around the city once each of the six days, marching around it seven times on the, the seventh day. This is not a, a military tactic. This is a ceremonial marching around the city. The priests are blowing the trumpets. The soldiers being silent. The people not speaking at all. The emphasis on seven, seven priests the seventh day, seven times, emphasizing the Trinity, God being involved in this work. The attack itself, no battering rams used, no cannons shot, the walls fell down by the mighty power of God. Archaeologists have discovered that earthquakes take place four times every century in the Jordan Valley. But this is a a supernatural intervention of God. On the seventh day, after the seventh time of marching, when the people shout, the walls fell down. Mighty victories. God's power, he is here in the ark, in the angel, in the approach, in the attack. It's his power, his working that is here in his church. He is present on the earth, giving them the victory against their enemies. In fact, he says at the very beginning in in verse number two, see, I have given Jericho into your hand before The walls even fell down. The victory was assured. Such is the presence and power of Almighty God. Rufus the hawk is ready at Wimbledon to do his work. Fifteen years old. He has this really great sovereign eye flying over the courts. He works also at Lords and, and Fulham Ground, but he, he'll be there for the two weeks at, at Wimbledon, starting at five o'clock in the morning, ready to find those pigeons who love the drains down at Wimbledon, looking over all, intervening here and there by his power and by his skill. And here is God, the sovereign over all peoples, coming to the city of Jericho. It's walled up, its defenses are strong but not stronger than the Lord of the church, the King of his people, the Christ of heaven. In our society, we consider that the moral decline, we consider that the law changes and the drift away from the laws of God. And we wonder how far this will go and will it ever be turned? Will there ever be a coming back to God again? And we come to this God the God of Jericho, and it seemed impossible for the people of Israel to take this city, one of the oldest cities in civilization, well defended, well situated, ready for the attack, and yet it crumbled before the almighty power of God. The Middle Ages, known as the Dark Ages, was a dark time theologically. 
People were prone to believe all kinds of fables and myths rather than the clear, inspired word of God. All kinds of moral decay was rampant in the religious leadership. And yet, from that darkness emerged the light of truth and change and reformation. Mighty victories and God's power. And we look to him in our life, in our time, in our society, in these days. But secondly, mighty victory and God's punishment. And this is one of the big considerations of this chapter, isn't it? That the whole city of Jericho was devoted to destruction. Man, woman, child, animal was to be destroyed. And this raises all kinds of thoughts and questions within some people regarding this ban that is placed on the city and repeated a number of times within the chapter. And we have some responses to that, don't we, as we have done and thought about already from from time to time. One use of this ban within the book of Joshua, and this is not the only place that is used, is that it's where cities do not surrender to the people of Israel, where they show opposition and, and they attack in return. In such cases, and only in such cases, is the ban used against them. Underlying this ban is the the spiritual concern of God that the the peoples of the land would not affect adversely his own people. The word Jericho and the Hebrew word for moon are very similar. And so scholars assume that Jericho was the center for moon worship within the land of Canaan. As the people of Israel entered into the land of Canaan, God wanted to keep the spiritual worship of his people pure. We see the detrimental impact of false worshippers in, in subsequent centuries within the people of Israel. How they dragged away God's people from his worship. And with that thinking, a noble aim in mind, this ban is placed on this city. God is sovereign, isn't he? He gives peoples and cities and nations to whom he will. God is holy. The sins of these nations is listed in Leviticus in chapter 18. And by any human standards, horrendous sins were being committed in the city of Jericho and in the land of Canaan. Child sacrifice was a dominant sin committed by the peoples of this land. And the holy God commands this ban on the city of Jericho and other cities within this land. His victory is not only a display of his absolute power in bringing these walls down, but his victory is also a display of his holiness in the punishment that he brings upon this city. Do you see how the the writer emphasizes the importance of obedience to God in this chapter? He's building up 
to the climax, isn't he? The walls are going to fall down. And he's building it up by taking us through the, the first day. They marched round the city on the first day. And then he gives us the detail. The second day, they marched round the city once on the second day. Then he comes to the seventh day. And, and we're getting to the climax now. And we come to this in verse number 16. They come on the seventh day and they, they marched round the city on, on the seventh day and blowing the trumpets and Joshua said to the people, verse 16, shout for the Lord has given you the city. And what's the next thing we would expect to read here? It's in verse 20. So the people shouted. But there's this paragraph in between that stalls the climax in verse 17 to 19. A group of rules and regulations and statutes comes in to this climatic feature of the chapter. Ralph Davis uh, notices this and he says, By such literary style, the writer highlights the priority of obedience to God's commands over victory in itself. The victory itself was not the climax, but the obedience of God's people to his command was crucial. And we'll learn about this in relation to Achan later on in our studies in Joshua. Archaeologists have been all over Jericho, haven't they, over the, the centuries? And they have discovered pottery dating back to 1400 BC in a bed of ash. And it corresponds to what happened here at Jericho, confirming verse 24. They burned the city with fire. Mighty victories and God's punishment. He brings a ban on the city. He he values our obedience even above the display of his mighty power. What an insight this ban is to God's judgment, isn't it? That unbelievers, all unbelievers, will face his wrath None will be excluded. None will escape. What an insight this is to that final day when the dead, small and great, as Revelation 20 puts it, will stand before God and the books will be open. Here is our God, a God of immense power, but also a God of punishment. And you and I, my friends, must, must have that assurance and that trust in Jesus Christ, that he is our saviour, that his blood has atoned for our sins, and that through him and him alone, we have forgiveness by his grace. God's power, God's punishment, and thirdly, in this chapter is emphasised God's pardon. And this is seen in two ways within the chapter. Why did they walk round this City for seven days and then seven times on the, on the Sabbath day. Why did they do this? 
What was the point of this ceremonial procession? If you think it was to scare the inhabitants of Jericho, you probably got that wrong. If you think it was to to loosen the foundations of the city, you've definitely got that wrong. What was the reason for this marching round the city? I think Daniel Howard in his commentary has it right. He says it's the, the offer of mercy to the people. God is saying to them, look, we're right on your doorstep here. We've come across that mighty river Jordan. This is the God I am. I'm right beside you here. We're going to attack you imminently. We're right here. Repent as Rahab has done. Believe in my mercy and love. Come to me. A God of forgiveness and life. He's granting them an opportunity. He's giving them a warning for seven days. He does nothing against the city. Another opportunity to seek him and to find him. He did this with Nineveh, didn't he? Before coming with destruction, He sent Jonah to warn them. Forty days and the city will be overthrown. And here he comes to Jericho in similar fashion. Showing them the ark. Showing them the priests. The soldiers in silent mode. Here's an offer of mercy for you. A time to repent. Receive this mighty God who can stop rivers. Protect his people. And we see his grace not only in that offer of mercy there which, which they rejected and were to hold that alongside of the ban, the destruction that, that comes when the city is, is, is conquered. But, but alongside that we see Rahab deliver the promise for her salvation kept. The two spies who had hidden her home are sent to find her and, and bring her out. And because she's a Gentile, she stays outside the camp for a time and then it is brought. And here is the God of victories alongside of his power and his punishment is his grace and his pardon displayed in Rahab who is brought in to the community of faith. And the text says, verse 25, she dwells within that community. Her change was not temporary. Her change was not spurious. It was permanent. It was deep. It was lasting. The work of grace in her soul was abiding. And she remained and lived and served and worshipped within that community of faith, changed by this God who pardons Sinners. Isn't this the biblical portrayal of God? A God of holiness, a God of justice, a God of power, a God who punishes, but a God of incredible mercy. The second commandment has it, doesn't it? Don't don't be making those idols. Don't don't try to to represent God. And and, and if you do, he'll he'll visit the iniquity on you to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. The third and the fourth generation of those who are idol worshippers will will receive judgment and, and, and punishment. But I'll show mercy to a thousand generations. 
of those who love me. Three or four generations of those who are idolaters, but a thousand generations of those who love me. And alongside of his justice and judgment here at Jericho, there is his grace, his offer of mercy to the city, his grace effective in, in the life of Rahab and her family being rescued and saved. And this is how the chapter ends, doesn't it? It holds out this contrast for us, this challenge to our life. Here is Jericho, and it's destroyed. Unbelieving Jericho, godless Jericho is brought down. But Rahab lives. Rahab, the woman of faith. Rahab, changed by the grace of God. She lives and has been held out to us then. Are we among the unbelieving, rejecting, are we among the believing, following, humble servants of Jesus Christ? Of course, the godless did not believe this curse placed on the city of Jericho to be a reminder of God's justice and judgment to all subsequent generations. And 500 years later, Biel in 1 Kings 19, under the reign of Ahab, he decides to rebuild this city. And his firstborn son dies when he lays its foundations. And his secondborn son dies when he sets up its gates. God's word is to be believed. Both his word of warning and his promise of mercy. Mighty victories. What a victory this is here. And we see God's power. This was only the beginning, wasn't it? This would go on, and in chapter 12 we will see 31 kings fall under the mighty power of God. In the south, in the middle, in the north of Canaan, God's mighty power put forth at Jericho and then in other places. What a God. What a king of the church. What a head of his people. On their side, able to pull down strongholds. And in all our lives, there are strongholds. And we don't have to look any further than our own hearts, for within each of our hearts, there are these strongholds of sin and iniquity and transgression. And we need to look to the head and king of the church to bring down these strongholds within our hearts. Perhaps it's a stronghold of, of lying uh, and you've told a half-truth to your spouse and you have to keep on with that half-truth and, and, and defend it and, and cover it. Perhaps it's the stronghold of cheating on your tax return every year. Perhaps it's the, the stronghold of swearing when you're suddenly irritated under your breath, you swear. Perhaps it's the stronghold of pride that you're intellectually advanced and you look down on those of a lesser intellect than yourself. Perhaps it's the stronghold of a quick temper and for years you have wrestled with this stronghold. And we need to, to look to to Christ, who brings down the walls of Jericho by his power. 
It is a cooperation here, isn't it? In salvation, it's, it's all Christ's work. It's all Christ's grace. But in sanctification, we are involved in that work. And here in the conquest of Jericho, the walls are brought down by God. But it's his people, empowered by God, who attack the city and burn it. And in our wrestling with the stronghold of our heart, not only do we pray to the Lord our God for deliverance and rescue and power, but we do every practical thing that we can to overcome this stronghold of sin in our hearts. Tell your spouse about your lying and work out a way of accountability to deal with it. Get a recognized accountant to do your tax return and bring to him all your invoices and deal with that stronghold in a practical way. Bite your tongue literally when you're going to swear. Walk away from a heated conversation that you'll not lose your temper or say what is wrong. The power of the exalted Christ bringing down the strongholds of our hearts and those who oppose us. The punishment. What a chapter this is for us, isn't it? This insight, this sight to God that he will judge the unbeliever, that he will bring down his enemies, that the final judgment will have not only the side with the sheep, but the side with the goats as well, that he will send out into the outer darkness those who reject his son. And we're to fear him. We're to give our hearts again to him and trust in him and his grace afresh that the Christ of power is the Christ of sovereign punishment. But he is also the Christ of pardon. In this tremendous victory, alongside of his punishments and his power, there is this pardon, this grace of Christ that's, that's coming forth in his mercy and in his love. This was evidenced in, in Jerusalem in, in AD 30. As the, the church prayed and, and the Spirit came down and 3,000 were brought into the, the kingdom of God. Evidenced in the, the time of the Reformation, in that time of spiritual and theological darkness. The Spirit coming down and transforming countries, leaders, nations. Extending the church of Jesus Christ. And evident in this very town itself in eighteen. 59, when revival broke out in North Antrim, the people in this town of Newtonards were concerned to see the power of this Christ here, this Christ who forgives Rahab, who offers his mercy to the city of Jericho, coming to this town as he was doing in the north of Antrim. The prayer meeting was begun in the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Newtonards. 200 people from the town attended. The town had 12,000 inhabitants. Around 1,200 were regular attenders at church. 
but 200 started attending the prayer meeting in the summer of 1859, growing in this weekly prayer meeting to a number of 4,000 within the town. And one historian says, in almost every street in the town, conversions were reported. Open-air services were held in Scrabble Tower, Dixon's Glen, which I don't know where it is, but also at the Reformed Presbyterian Church Green at Ann Street, and thousands of people hearing his word. This is the head of the church, a Christ of power, a Christ of punishment, but a Christ of pardon. It comes in grace. Mercy, salvation. We don't have high hopes for any of the British tennis players, do we, over the next fortnight? The opposition's too great for them. Here's our Savior. There's nothing too hard for him. And we look to him for the various challenges and strongholds within our life within our family, within our workplace, within our community, the Christ of power, the Christ of pardon. 